0: Good morning everybody, I, my name is Cody, I, I'm usually the one leading worship here, I, um, I'm the, technically the pastor of church formation and worship, and what this means for us this morning is that basically the people in skinny jeans have taken over uh, the leadership of the church, um, obviously with the exception of Frank, who uh, let's just face it, none of us are ready for him in skinny jeans, um, amen to that, yes, I already got an amen, Um but no, I, I, I'm so excited to be here uh, getting to preach through this passage. This is one, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It, it's, uh, it kind of, it, it, it's where Paul begins to articulate our radical response to the radical gospel that he has laid out in all the chapters before. You kind of think of this as, as a new section, as a new introduction to kind of what Paul's going to be doing for the rest of the, of the book. And I, I'm really excited to be going through it. So be, because it is such kind of a pivotal verse, in the book of Romans. I, I wanna make sure that we know where we have been uh, in Romans before we get here. Right at the beginning of Romans one seventeen, Paul kind of states his thesis. He states what this whole book is about. He says, for in it, it being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's righteousness is given to man through the faithful actions of Jesus Christ and our faithful response to his merciful promise. That's kind of what he is articulating throughout that whole book. And he begins by, by basically saying, this world is broken. This world is sinful. And because this world is sinful, there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves before God. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God because what God requires is righteousness. God requires us to be perfect in light of him. And and so because of that, God sends his son. It's kind of what what Paul says, God God sends his son to be righteousness for us. Sends him to to fulfill the covenant and the promise made to Abraham and to, to kind of become a new creation, kind of to start this new family of faith. He called, Paul actually calls Jesus the new Adam. The people born out of this new Adam would, would be part of this new people of God that was filled by the Holy Spirit and sanctified by his presence. And Paul makes very clear that this is the plan that God had from the beginning. That when, Paul, when, when God made a promise to Abraham, he said, I am going to bless you so that you might be a blessing to others, so that the blessing of my love might be given to all people, to all nations, And that's what Jesus was an answer to. And now, through that, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all people, Jews and Gentiles, those who are far and those who are near, all people into one people, which is the church. And Paul, by the end of kind of talking about this for 11 chapters, he just like erupts and prays. Like He he just can't contain how excited and how joyful he is as a result of all that is done. And and he, he writes right at the end of chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this is what Frank talked about last week. This is the, verse that, the verses that he looked at. He says a good theology always leads to joyful doxology. That, that the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the good news of who God is and what we have in him should cause us to worship him, should cause us to praise him, should cause us to respond with awe and with gratitude. And that, that's kind of where we're at at the end of, of Romans 11. See, without God's intervening grace, we would have been doomed to the just conclusions of our rebellion. But, but like a, a drowning man pulled out moments before his final breath, God has pulled us out from the misery of hell and into his perfect and, and, and life-giving presence and into his kingdom. That's kind of where we're at. This is the gospel. This is what Paul has been talking about for 11 chapters. And now we get to Romans 12. he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a few weeks ago, I was at my nephew's first birthday party. I know this is a little weird, but I love going to one-year-old's birthday parties Um, just because usually it's during that that they get to taste sugar for the first time in their life. Like if you have not seen it, it's an incredible experience. Like like these poor kids, like you just look at them. Like what has 21st century parenting done to our children? Like their first year of life, all they have to look forward to are peas and squash. And bananas and stuff like that. Like literally the best thing that they have going for them is that they can have a banana. It's awful. It's terrible. It's cruel. But but then like on their first birthday, they get to have cake. And I, and I loved watching my nephew. We did this for our kids too and it was, it was awesome. Like they're just looking at this thing. Usually they're told not to put strange things in their mouth. But their parents are like encouraging them on and just looking around not sure what to do. They take this little tiny bite and then you just see it. Like their eyes just get bigger than they've ever gotten before their mouths get huge and they just start shoveling this thing all over them it's in their mouths it's all over their faces on the wall behind them it's on the neighbor's wall i mean it's like it's just everywhere and and i love it and and as i was watching my uh, nephew do this I, i kept on thinking like i think this is a good picture of worship as kind of what we were talking specifically with what frank was talking about last week this is this is kind of what happens we we get overwhelmed by the goodness of God, when we finally taste that forgiveness, when we finally taste that, that the sweetness of God's love and God's mercy that God has, has brought us into his family, that he has reconciled us into his people, we just, we just erupt. We don't praise him because we're making ourselves, we praise him because we can't help it. It's like the, the little kid shoveling stuff into his mouth, he, he, he doesn't know how else to react to it. I think we think of worship like that, and I, and I think it's good that we think of worship like that, but as I was thinking about it, I, I think when we think of worship like that, it's right, but it's incomplete. See, the problem is, is that we'll think of it like that, and then we'll stop. We'll stop and say, okay, that's what worship is. Now let's talk about the rest of the Christian life. And, and, and going back to my nephew, like in that moment, something else happens to this kid it's not just delight that he's experienced but there there's been a fundamental shift now in what he knows can delight him and that changes the way he lives from then on his poor parents will never be able to coax him to do anything will never be able to coax him to clean up his room or to not pee on the bookshelves or to not hit his brother with the promise of sweet potatoes and carrots like it's just, it's just not gonna cut it. No, nothing's gonna cause him to do that. The only thing that will work from that moment on is sugar, <laughs> ice cream, cookies, all this good stuff because he knows that there's something greater that can delight him and it's changed the way he lives. See, As we get into Romans 12, one and two, and really the rest of Romans, Paul does make a pretty dramatic shift. In Romans one through 11, Paul is basically talking about the the gospel. He's defining what it is. It's his most in-depth treatise of the gospel. It's very detailed. It's very kind of difficult to wade through. And then you get to Romans 12, and and it's, it's a very clear shift. He's starting to talk about, this is practically what this means. This is what Christians should do. This is how Christians should live their lives. I mean, every commentator I read, every pastor I've ever talked to would break it into two sections, Romans 12 being the beginning of the second section. But in doing so, my fear is that we'll forget that there is a a significant continuity between the second half of the book of Romans and the first. That there is a deep connection between the second half of the book of Romans and the first See, when we experience the sweet flavor of God's life, we experience and we taste his goodness, we eat from the bread of life, we, we drink the living water that is, that is his redemption, that is his salvation. Not only do we erupt in praise and delight, but there's something fundamental that changes us. We know now that something greater can delight us and it should change the way we live. Paul, for the next few chapters, is going to basically outline how a Christian should live. What it means to live as a Christian. And sometimes he'll do so abstractly, sometimes very, very practically. He'll kind of go through, and and, and that's basically what we're going to be doing for the next few months. And and honestly, I think this will be really refreshing. Um, After spending a year and a half in in some of the most in-depth, detailed Uh, theology of the Bible, I think it's gonna be very refreshing for us to kind of just dig into some practical application points. But what I don't want us to do is to separate what we're gonna be talking about from now on from what we've already talked about. I don't want us to separate the practical from the theological, kind of the application from the instruction. We need to remember that when Paul is telling us to do all this stuff, he's telling us to do so because of the gospel, Because of the gospel, we use our gifts to serve one another. Because of the gospel, we abhor evil and love what is good. Because of the gospel, we submit to authorities. Because of the gospel, everything. This is how Paul begins chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God isn't some reference to just something before in the verse. He's talking about everything that he's talked about before. By the mercies of God is kind of his way of saying because of the gospel he says therefore because of the mercies of God because of all that has been said about what God has done for us in spite of our sin and rebellion and would all, all that he has done with reconciling us with forgiving us with giving us the gift of his spirit with giving us new life because of the gospel this is how we should live This is really kind of how I want you to think about what we're going to be preaching on over the next few months in the book of Romans. Like we're going to say things in the upcoming weeks like don't judge each other or submit to authority or live peaceably with others. You're going to hear that. And whenever you hear that, I want you to add the phrase because of the gospel in front of it. It says because of the gospel, we don't judge each other. Because of the gospel, we submit to authority. Because of the gospel, we live peaceably with others. The Christian life is lived because of the gospel. Theology leads to doxology. That's kind of Frank's point from last week. Theology leads to doxology. The more we know about God, as we know who God is, it will lead to us praising him. But this isn't just doxology, this isn't just praise that happens in a moment. This isn't just praise that happens on Sunday when when we sing songs about God. This is praise that permeates every aspect of our lives. So when I said that worship is, when we think of worship like that, it's incomplete, this is what I mean. See, Paul is not moving on to some new topic for the rest of the book. He is actually kind of continuing with what happens at the end of chapter 11 and saying, this is what it means to worship God. A lot of times we'll kind of call the second section of Romans, kind of how should Christians live? And I think it's probably better titled How Should Christians Worship? In light of the gospel, because of all that God has done, how should we worship? And we should worship him with praise. We should worship him with awe. We should worship him with delight. But we don't stop there. We worship him with a lifestyle of worship, with worshipful obedience. And so... This is kind of what Paul is kind of setting himself up to do. The first two verses are really kind of like a summary catch-all statement. It's gonna permeate through the rest of the book. It's kind of saying if you have these three kind of grids in mind, these three commandments that he's kind of of give here, this is gonna help shape and help help you kind of inform all the other stuff that I'm gonna say. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. And he basically gives three commands. He gives three directives here in these two verses as to how we should live because of the gospel. And the first directive is this. He says, because of the gospel, live all of life, all for Jesus. Because of the gospel, live all of life, all for Jesus. It says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And to use language that we're used to hearing, Paul is basically saying here that because of the gospel, we are to live all of life, all for Jesus. If you've been around Redemption Church for any period of time, you've probably heard us use this phrase. We say it from the front almost every week that all of life is all for Jesus. We actually have t-shirts that have this exact thing written on it. I almost wore one, but I thought that would just look lazy. Um, Not that the shirts are lazy, so uh, you can wear those whenever you want. Um, But I this is a big deal to us. This, this is something that has become a big part of this church and it's a big deal to Paul. This is, this is how he starts. He had an, an opportunity, to, the first thing that he had the opportunity to say with regards to how we should live in accordance with the gospel is this, that we should live all of life, all for Jesus. And I love that he starts by saying, present your bodies. It's important here to note that he uses bodies as opposed to to, to other things, because it, 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 it puts our response right on the ground. He doesn't say, present only your intellect or only your belief or only your mind. He says to present your bodies. The same things that we eat and drink with, that we run around with or sit around with. Same things that, the laughs and cries. The thing that, if you're Sean Myers, steals guacamole from empty tables at restaurants. Um, like, That body, our bodies. That's what we're supposed to give to God. Because of the gospel, we are supposed to give every part of us, everything that happens from our bedrooms to our office, from our minds to our hands, everything is to be presented as a sacrifice, as an offering to God, a sacrifice that is is full of the life of God, that is holy like God is holy, and that is pleasing and acceptable to him. Because of the gospel, we are to live all of life all for Jesus. I think for a long time in the evangelical church, this concept of of presenting the physical as a sacrifice to God in obedience, it was really lost. And I think that we're pushing hard to reclaim it, which is part of the reason why we say all of life is all for Jesus. But I think it was really lost kind of in in, in the, the modern church. Historically, this idea of presenting our life as kind of a sacrifice as an offering to God is thought of under the term of sacrament. Some of you guys have heard the word sacrament, but it, it basically means kind of this union of the divine and the common. That it, it's, it's when we do something that is physical, that is material, that means and symbolizes something that is spiritual. You know, a great example is something that we're about to do uh, when I'm done here. That's communion. We do this every single week here. It's where we take bread and wine and we eat it. Now, I mean, in most contexts, that's not a spiritual thing. That's just something we do. That's something physical. But in the context of communion, when we drink the wine and we eat the bread, we're kind of proclaiming, remembering what Jesus did on the cross for us. Another example is baptism. So in a few weeks, we're going to baptize people, which is basically you just dunk them in water. You know, and I do that to my kids every time I'm in the pool with them. There's nothing special about just dunking in water. But when we do it, In the context of baptism we're kind of symbolizing the identity we have in christ we're identifying with the burial and resurrection of jesus and that's what we're doing when we're baptized see so when we say every single week that all of life is all for jesus we are trying as a church to reclaim in the christian life the lifestyle of sacrament We close our service and are told to go out and live on mission, to live out the gospel in our lives, in in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities, in our work. We are trying to help us to reclaim a lifestyle of sacrament. Basically, your bank statements should cause people to remember the goodness of God, to proclaim his glory, and to anticipate the ultimate renewal of all things. If you're single, your singleness should cause people to remember the goodness of God, to proclaim his glory and to anticipate the ultimate renewal of all things. If you're married, the same thing. Everything we eat and drink, everything we say and don't say, everything we do and don't do should remember the goodness of God, should proclaim his glory and should anticipate his ultimate renewal of all things. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, for this is your spiritual worship. I love the way he ends this I mean, this is kind of a radical statement. He's just, he's coming straight at it. He's not leaving really any wiggle room. He's saying, what you should do in light of the gospel is give everything. It's basically what he's saying. And then he goes on to kind of drive it further home. And and when he tacks on, for this is your spiritual worship, he's basically saying, this is the only thing that makes sense in light of what God has done. This is the only thing that will be acceptable to God. This, the term spiritual worship, is, it's really kind of a hard phrase to translate into English. I mean, I think they translated it as best they could, but there was connotations with it when it was written. It would be kind of this idea of worship that is consistent with who God is, that is genuine, that has integrity. You can kind of hear in it echoes of 1 Samuel 15, where it says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This is a theme that is, that is developed throughout the whole Bible, from the law to the prophets to the Psalms. This is some, a theme with which Jesus kind of attacks the Pharisees with, with which James exhorts the church. This idea of, of the fact that the only thing that is acceptable to God, the only thing that really matters to him, the only thing that really makes sense in light of all that God has done and who he is, is an obedient life. We're to live our lives as a sacrament. Because of the gospel, we're to live all of life, all for Jesus. Paul continues uh, in verse two by giving kind of another directive. So we have, "Because because of the gospel, all of life is all for Jesus. And then he goes on in verse two to say, because of the gospel, live with transformed desires. Because of the gospel, live with transformed desires. He writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Because of the gospel, live with transformed desires. Our natural life, our deepest affections, those things which drive everything that we do in this world, should not be conformed the cultural system of this age, the cultural system that is set against the culture, system, age, and rule of God. Rather, our, our desires, our, our deepest affections, those things which drive every action, every choice that we have, every thought that we have, every belief that we hold dear. Our, our deepest selves need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit's renewing work. That's what he's saying here. Let me give you an example of what I mean between the difference of uh, being conformed Something and then being transformed. Uh, it's kind of like a, a confession for me. When it, when I was in college, I uh, I actually ate in in a single sitting an entire box of Oreos, the the whole thing. Like it was it was much of it was just this haze. I I don't remember a whole lot of it. I I sat down. I uh, just remember sitting down to watch a movie, opening it up. Had that one of those easy peel tops, um, and like thirty minutes later, I remember reaching in there and just. There was nothing, they were all gone. Did not mean to do it, but you know, just ate the whole thing. They were all in my quickly growing belly uh, at the time. And um, I think that was just an indication of the fact that like I just didn't care growing up. Like, like I just didn't care about what I ate. I didn't care really if I exercised. You know, I, I, I had, I, I believed in what I called the holy trinity of food, which is uh, pizza, burgers and tacos. That's kind of what I thought was kind of the fabric of the diet. I didn't know that there was actually a pyramid thing. I just thought it was these three basic things. You fill them in multiple times in the day. Um, like, like, I just didn't care. I, and my metabolism was okay enough to where, like, it could ward off the really bad effects. But, and, and this shouldn't surprise anybody. As, as I got older, my metabolism wore off. And let's just say my body began to conform more and more to the system of unhealthiness and lack of exercise that I had going on in my life. I didn't like, I didn't set out to gain 30 pounds and, and grow a gut, or at times to have like three chins. Like that wasn't my goal, I didn't wake up one day, I'm like, I think that would look good. I'm gonna try that. You know, but, but that's just kind of the way it works. I, I didn't necessarily intend to do that, but I was living in this system of unhealthiness. And as a result, my body over time was conforming to it. You know, I, a few weeks ago, I turned 30, and, and my wife, as I approached my th- becoming 30, I, she kind of said, you know what? Let's do this together. Let's, let's change our diet together. I love how she says together, as though she needs to do anything. <laughs> like, um, but let's do this together. And I, my body was, once again, more and more quickly conforming to this. So I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So I pretty much ate nothing but meat, vegetables, and fruit. And water for like a month and like it was awful like it was it was the worst thing I've ever done like I was mad I was tired I was irritable I I like I started dreaming like actually dreaming about pizza and tacos <laughs> like that that actually happened to me I would wake up I'm like I just I just want them that's all I want to eat right now I mean it was really hard my, my body had so conformed to this bad way of life that like it was it was really challenging but the truth is, over time, something did happen. Like, things began to change. And not only did like, the gut begin to shrink and the three chins magically turn back into one, but like, things that I used to think were gross, I actually kind of started to look forward to. Like I, I started looking forward to scrambled eggs and asparagus, to eating spaghetti squash and banana-based ice cream. Like, I, I ended up becoming that guy that I used to make fun of Like my whole life growing up. And not only that, but the things that I used to love, like grossed me out. Like uh, I'll give you another example. I, I about a year ago, I drove out of my way to a KFC so that I could try what's called a KFC Double Down. Um, now, a few of you guys know what those are. For those of you who don't know what it is, a Double Down is a fried chicken sandwich that replaces the bread with fried chicken. It is fried chicken and cheese sandwiched between. Fried chicken. Uh, I'm pretty sure these things are illegal now. I actually checked their website. <laughs> like, it's not there. You will not find a KFC Double Down if you go there. Um, and apart from it being, at the time, one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten, uh, like, like I look back on that, and after going through this thing where we were learning about food, I was eating stuff differently, all these changes, like, the thought of eating something like that just grossed me out. It seems so disgusting to me. See my desires were transformed. My because there was this new system that was informing what I did. This new system in which I was living, my desires were transformed and my body was no longer conforming to just unhealthiness, but it was transformed into a well, was semi-healthy. I won't call it healthy yet, but better. <laughs> I we need to know this. We have all been born into an unhealthy system. In fact, it's more than unhealthy. It is a lethal culture. It is a culture whose values are set against everything that God stands for. And it is changing us, it is shaping us, and it is ultimately going to kill us. This is happening to us right now. We need to know this. This world system that we inhabit, this system that values self above all else, that medicates with things, that promotes the strong at the expense of the weak, that that kind of illuminates us with shininess and and, and replaces beauty with plastic. This world that is against everything that God stands for, that every value that he has is conforming us into its image. It is changing the way we think, the way we feel, the way we want. And if, we, if nothing happens to us, if nothing intervenes in our lives, it will kill us. It is changing everything about us. It's changing even our habits. I, 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 like, I like using the idea of habits when we talk about desires, because I I think that habits, more than when we talk about lifestyle or actions, like the, the thoughtless gut response we have to this world, is I think our most pure indicator of what we most deeply desire. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about it on that level when he's saying that we would be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's speaking to it on that level in our gut in our habits, in, in, in the things that we go through this world without thinking doing. Saying that's what needs to be transformed. What that looks like when, when we see need, that means we respond with generosity without thinking about it. That we go around building each other's up just, just because that's what we do. We seek purity instinctually. We, we praise God in the good times and in the bad times because that's our habit. That's what we have. See, a transformed desires produces transformed habits. It permeates every aspect of our lives, and that's what God is calling us to. That's how we should live. That's what our life should look like because of the gospel, that we should live with transformed desires. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, before we move on from this to kind of the last command that Paul gives, I I think it's important uh, to clarify how this process works. Um, see, the reality is we can actually change quite a bit about, our, about ourselves through self-discipline. We can change actions, we can change lifestyle stuff. You know, we, we can even change, I think, to an extent our desires, but because of sin, but because the deep embedded nature of sin and rebellion in our hearts, there is nothing that we can do to change our desires, our deepest desires those things that most deeply drive everything that we do. Because of sin, there's nothing that we can do to change that. When Paul is talking about here the renewal of the mind, he's not talking about, uh, this this isn't something that we do. The kind of silent and, and implied person that is renewing the mind is the Holy Spirit. This is something that the Holy Spirit does to us. This is not something that we do to ourselves. And I love the way kind of that, that the Spirit will change our hearts. Because, he, you know, he could do it by force. You know, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. He could do it through pain, he could do it through shame. He could do it a lot of different ways. But the way he chooses to do it, the way he chooses to change our hearts is through beauty and love. I had a, I had a buddy share this story with me um, that I think really helps in understanding the way God changes our hearts. And it's, it's actually a Greek myth. Uh, story of Jason and the Argonauts. Jason was this guy, he wanted to be a ruler, and in order to be a ruler, he needed what's called the golden fleece, which is basically a shawl that you drape over your arm. And so he had to sail across the sea to do that. He had a boat called the Argo, and he had a bunch of people on it, which he called the Argonauts, which is Jason and the Argonauts. Now, in sailing over there, he knew he was gonna have to pass by the island of the Sirens. If you know anything about kind of Greek Uh, mythology the island of the sirens was this basically this island out in the middle of the sea it's filled with these lovely half bird half lady creatures that would sing and ultimately draw sailors to their death there's these jagged rocks surrounding it and the the siren songs were these probably beautiful songs that after being out at sea for so long they would hear this and they just said i i need to i need to be there and they would always turn their ships and they would just die that's what the sirens were and jason knew that he was going to have to pass by these people and so what he does is he, he brought this man named Orpheus. Orpheus was the best singer, kind of uh, songwriter, music maker of his age. They once said of Orpheus, he, he was walking through the forest on his way to the shore, playing a song and singing it. And the trees uprooted themselves and walked down to the beach and planted themselves in the shore just so they could hear the end of Orpheus' song. So Jason brought this man, Orpheus, with him. And as they approached the sirens, they they began to hear him sing. He said, Orpheus, I want you to play. And Orpheus began to play. He began to sing. And everybody was so, so overwhelmed by the beauty and the power of Orpheus' song that they didn't even hear the sirens singing. And they passed on in safety. In the same way, God, through his son, revealed through his word, implemented by the Spirit, and enacted by his church, is singing the gospel song of love and salvation. He is singing it right now. And its beauty drowns out the cheap and deadly songs of this world. His song is more compelling than the song of lust and greed, of comparison, of conquest. His song is more beautiful than anything. And all we have to do is listen. That's our role in this process, is to listen to God's song with faith. In a practical way, uh, listening to the gospel song means that we are, we are kind of more and more incorporated into and surrounded by God's story. And we do this by, for one, knowing the Bible, and two, by participating in the church. That's kind of how we do this. Uh, this uh, this book is how God sings his song to us. The more we know this book, the more that we are involved in this book, the more that we understand this book, the more that we are surrounded by the story of what is revealed here in this book, the more we will hear the gospel song. So if you, if you don't know this book, If you're a Christian and have been a Christian for a while and have not read this book in its entirety, I'm not not here to make you feel bad. I I understand. It's a big book. But it's going to be hard for you to hear God's song cut through the noise. If you're showing up on Sundays and you just turn your brain off and, and you listen and be entertained, it's going to be very hard for you to hear the gospel song cut through the noise and the song of the siren that we're surrounded by in this world. I know this, this sounds like a really churchy thing for me to say, um, but if you want to hear this music, if, if you want to be transformed ultimately by the Holy Spirit, you need to know and read and love this book and you need to get involved with this church. This is what the church does. This is what the lifestyle of worship in the church does. The, the, the church is kind of the lived values of the Bible. So when you show up on Sunday mornings, you're not just, we're not just up here playing hopefully good music and uh, we're not just giving you interesting sermons for you to think about and we're not providing kind of community time. Like we are amplifying the gospel song so that you might hear it more clearly. When you participate in an RC, when you're praying together, when you're participating in like things like our local and global initiatives, when you go to surge events or, or uh, theology nights, we are amplifying the gospel song, so that you might hear it more clearly. So that the more you are involved with it, the more you are surrounded by it, the more you will be transformed by it. Paul says that that because of the gospel, we're to live all of our life and all for Jesus and live with transformed desires. Those are the, kind of the two ways that he starts it out, and he has one more thing that he says. He says, because of the gospel, do what God wants. Because of the gospel, do what God wants. He says that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I, knew, I know some of you guys might be thinking this, that, that when I say that, that sounds a lot like legalism. You know, I, I don't know if it's because we're Americans or because we're Protestants or, or because we're both, but there are a few things that anger us more than being told that we're supposed to do what God says. And not only that, that God actually expects that from us. That God expects us to live and to do what God wants. I, I, I you know, we, we'll, we'll shudder at it. Like, we'll... we'll uh, We'll quote verses like Galatians 5.1. We'll say, for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we'll say, look, it's right there. I've been freed from it. I don't need those rules. I don't need God's law. I've got a relationship with him and now I can do what I want. I'm free. We'll say that. We'll, we'll, we'll use the Bible to actually justify us kind of pushing against him. And anytime anybody says, well, you know, you know, part of being a Christian is being obedient to him. We just put up in arms. We say, look, I've got a relationship with him. I'm going to do what God wants. Or I'm going to do what I want. You know, the truth is, doing what God wants isn't part of being a Christian. Doing what God wants is being a Christian. It is our identity. Those who are Christ followers follow Christ. It, it, It is not something that we can push back on, them, but we do it all the time. We use the scripture to justify our own divines and say, I've got my relationship, I'm gonna do what I want. You can have your rules, I'll have my relationship. I hear that all the time. But the truth is inherent in the relationship that we have with God. This relationship that we have, by the way, that we did nothing for, that we did nothing to earn, God has brought us in through his grace into his family this relationship, inherent in that relationship, is an expectation that we're going to do what God wants. We're going to follow the rules laid out by him. He expects us to do what God wants, not in order to earn the relationship and really not in order to maintain the relationship. He expects us to do what God wants because of the relationship. You know, I, I think uh, uh, some of my friends that have adopted children, we just had some friends um, adopt a little boy out of an orphanage in Ethiopia. You know, it's a long, drawn out, expensive process. They brought him home, bring him into this home where he's gonna be cared for, loved for the rest of his life. He's never gonna have to worry about food. He's never gonna worry about anything like that. Now, I guarantee you, when they brought that little boy home, they didn't just say, okay, you can kind of live under the same rules you've always lived under. You can abide by the same principles you've always had. Like, I'm sure that they've disciplined him since coming home. I'm sure that they've expected him to do things the same same way they would expect their biological son to do what they expect, they want. And you know, we would look at that and nobody here would say that that's wrong. Nobody here would say that's unkind or unfair. The rules that that little boy gets to live under now in their home is so much better than the rules he had to live under outside of there. It's so much more life-giving than what he had to live under previously. And that's what we have. So we have been brought into God's home. We have been brought into a place where we have the privilege of living out the life-giving law of God. It is God's expectation that we do this, not because he wants to hurt us, not because he wants to restrict us, but because he knows that this is the best thing for us. That living life under his rule, living life under his will is so much better than living a life under the rule and reign of a life apart from God. See, this is a continuation of good news. It is good news that we get to do what God wants because when we do what God wants, we will flourish. When we do what God wants, we will be given life. This isn't a death sentence to us. This is an opportunity for us to live the way God meant us to live, under his rule, under his reign, and by his will. It is the good news of God that we get to do what God wants. It says that by testing, you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, The truth is, it's easy for me to kind of stay up here and like stand up here and say that. Nope, guys, just do what God wants. See you later. Super easy. Uh, Like I I get that this is much more difficult in real life. For two reasons. The first is sin. Like sin is present in our lives. It's gonna be fighting against us and doing this as long as we're here. And like the good thing about that is because we've been saved as a result of the gospel, because it wasn't our effort that earned us favor, we can't lose it because we sin. Like, so we have the gospel there keeping us there. So as we deal with this, as we try to do what God wants and we fail, we know that we have his mercy. We know that we have his forgiveness. But the other thing that makes this really hard is that God doesn't actually tell us what he wants in all circumstances. And I would say arguably most circumstances he doesn't tell us what he wants. He does in some, and we're going to look at that over the next few months. As we look at Romans 12, we're, we're going to see different aspects of what God desires, some very specific things that he says. But like, for example, God doesn't tell us how to vote. He doesn't tell us how to budget. He doesn't tell us what to do when your kid flings spaghetti on your wife. Like, I would say most of the things that we do in life, God doesn't specifically weigh in on. And so when when I say, do what God wants, there's a very real problem there in that, yeah, we want to do that, but I don't know. I don't know what God wants. Like, this is just as hard for me as it is for you. I have to make decisions every single day where I'm asking, what does God want in this circumstance? And I love the way that Paul kind of puts it here. Paul doesn't just say, do what God wants, and here's this exhaustive list. This is it. As long as you live in this framework, you're fine. His, I would say, is, is much better and much more difficult, what he says. He says that if you're living all of your life all for Jesus, if you are intentionally giving your life as a sacrifice, living life as a sacrament to God. And if you're living with transformed desires, if you're allowing the culture of God, the beauty of the gospel song of his love to inform us, to shape us, to mold us, and to transform us, then we are going to have a renewed mind. And with our renewed mind, we'll actually be able to discern God's will. See, the answer that he has there is that if you want to know what God wants, it's through discernment. It's if you're living this life, they're, they're all interconnected. If you're living life all for Jesus, if you're living with transformed desires, you're gonna know what God wants and you're gonna want to do it. He says, because of the gospel, live all of life all for Jesus. Live with transformed desires and do what God wants. let close by reading this again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers,